civilians. So we better buckle up and stay a while. We read Exodus chapter one this morning. Please follow along as I read aloud. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household: Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were seventy persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too mighty, too many, and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh the store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and all and in all kinds of work and in the field. In all their work they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah, and the other Kua, When you serve as midwife to the mid Hebrew Hebrew women, and see them on the birth stool. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to Hebrews he shall cast into the Nile, but he shall let every daughter live. Let's pray one more time. Gracious Father, give aid to the preaching of your word. Open our ears to hear what you would have us to hear. Increase our hunger for you, increase our knowledge of you, and cause us to grow and abound, to be fruitful in the faith as you did for the Israelites here. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are starting. We are starting Exodus this morning, and I'm excited. Uh, Exodus, as a whole, is a is a book of redemption. It is a book of salvation and deliverance. The physical 
Exodus, exit that Israel went through in the book of Exodus is parallel with the Christian's spiritual exodus. There's, there's a lot of movement going on in the book of Exodus. Israel is here in Egypt, but they will go out of Egypt by a great, powerful redemption by God, by Yahweh. And then as they go out, they'll go to Sinai, and they'll travel, and they'll continue to travel, and eventually, as later books will pick up, they'll, they'll get into the land that God promised to give them hundreds of years earlier. But there's there's a movement. There's, there's slavery in Egypt, there's redemption, and then there's worship in the desert. That's the movement of the book of Exodus. It's also the movement of you, the Christian. God, in the New Testament, does this a lot. We're, before we're in the Lord, before we're in Christ, we're, we're called slaves of sin. We're in slavery, bondage to sin. And by Jesus Christ, we're redeemed out of sin. And we're redeemed in order to worship Yahweh. That, that same pattern that is physically there in Exodus is portrayed again and again in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament. That God moves his people. He's moving his people. There might be songs written about how God himself moves in mysterious ways. There's also a movement for God's people. <coughs> you are never in one place or meant to stay in one place. You're supposed to move. That might be a different town. But more profoundly, you're supposed to move in the Lord and to grow in the Lord. Exodus shows us, this is all just precursor to the entire book, Exodus shows us God's always doing something with his people. He's always active. God's not dormant, lazy, inactive, doing something. However mysterious, however invisible, he's always doing something. And that doing of something might confound us, perplex us, confuse us, frustrate us. Um, but he's doing something. And he's doing it for our good. He's doing it to bring himself glory. He's also doing it for our own spiritual good. He's, he's saving his people. He's transforming his people. He's ultimately marching us to glory. That's where the Lord is moving us. And we see that pattern all over Scripture, and in a very interesting way, we see that in Exodus with the Israelites in Egypt, and then saved, and then going out to worship God. We need to really believe that. Otherwise, when trouble comes, we're liable to doubt the Lord. Um, he's not here. He's not present. He let this thing happen to me. Or he's just not protecting me. But in reality, even in a sad situation like the chapter 1 of Exodus, God is present. He's very present. Right? There's no human explanation for why Exodus 1 happens the way it does. 
But there is a, a very good reason. Because God's there. And He's active and He's moving His people. He flourishes His people. And then when they start to get oppressed, in some incredulous way, the oppression only works out to more multiplication. And it really begins the story of redemption, the story of removing God's people out of slavery. God's in all moments, every moment. Every single moment. I am not a math person. I couldn't stand math in high school or college. I still can't. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Another brother. But I do know this, or remember this about math. There's whole numbers and there's integers. God doesn't work with whole number providence. He'll work here, and then he'll work here, and then he'll work there. He works along this integer line of days, of, of minutes, of seconds. Every single moment of your life is a moment that God is in complete control. It's not whole number problems. It's every single second, every year, every month, every day, everything. And we see here that he's, he's moving his people and he's doing it because he's faithful. He's a, he's a faithful Lord. He's a faithful God. If you were to summarize chapter 1, you would just say, God's promises are the indivisible cause for his people's growth and their protection. God's promises are the invisible cause, the invisible reason why his people experience what they do or what they won't experience. So, just two points this morning. First off, God's, God's faithfulness to his promises are good. God's faithfulness to his promises are our good. We see that in verses 1 to 7. There's a list here of the names of Jacob, uh, the sons of Jacob. Reuben, Reuben, all the way down to Asher and Joseph. They're brought to Egypt, but they weren't always in Egypt. You guys probably know the story, but just to recap very quickly, Joseph, one of Jacob's sons, to say it lightly, did not get along with his other brothers. <laughs> so, full of brotherly love, his other brothers wanted to kill him. But since they're so compassionate, one of them said, let's not kill him, let's just sell him into slavery. At least we'll make a profit out of it. So they sold Joseph into slavery in Egypt. Joseph goes through the gamut in Egypt. He's, he's fleeing temptation, he's, he's being forgotten about, he's in prison cells. Finally, he actually reaches Basically, he's the VP of Egypt after some time. He's the vice president. There's Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and then there's Joseph, who's not even a real Egyptian. He's a, he's a Jew, he's a Hebrew. But he, by God's kind providence, he climbs the Egyptian ladder. And he gets up to a position where, by his position, and because of a famine in the land, really in the known world, 
His brothers, family, others need to come to him. So those who used to be frankly murderers toward him come to him and say, we need, we need some help now. They can force you to know that was him. After some tearful exchange and you know, making up, Joseph brings his whole family in Egypt to survive the famine, and so God brings them there. But as they're going, you have to wonder, like, okay, Jacob and his and his twelve sons are living in Israel, the promised land, but there's a famine there. There's a there's a famine in God's promised land. What are you doing, God? This is the land flowing with milk and honey. Why 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 can't you find any food? That's a whole other story. But they go down to Egypt and they begin to prosper there. But but before they even get there, this is what this is what Yahweh says to Jacob, the father of these twelve tribes. I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. You gotta be, Jacob's gotta be wondering, how long is this going to go on for? How long are we uprooted? Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So in Exodus, excuse me, in Genesis 46, 3 and 4, God speaks to Jacob and assures them, hey, this isn't on your agenda, but this is on my agenda. You're going to go down to Egypt and you're going to prosper there. And he, and he, he gives a classic line, don't worry, I'm going to be with you. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. So there is a promise you're going to go down, you're going to flourish and multiply, and I'm going to bring you out of there. And beforehand, Joseph is going to close your eyes. You're going to pass away, Jacob. Joseph's going to remain. But this is how your life is going to be. And, and this promise was fulfilled right here in Exodus 1, 1 through 7. Specifically, verse 7. The people of Israel were fruitful. And I want you to, again, I know I read this earlier, I want you to see the growth words, the multiplication words. The people of Israel were fruitful, increased greatly, they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. The, the picture is, so they live in, they live in Goshen, right, kind of a, a rural area right outside uh, many Egyptian centers of populace. They live in Goshen. They're pasturing their flocks there, and they're the filling of the land. Now we have probably heard this before, where because of the midwives' speech, Israel they just they have a lot of kids. Hebrews have a lot of children, and their their ladies are vigorous, and they they have really rapid deliveries. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is they went down there and at one point they were there with 70 people. Later on, they were so fruitful, so abounding in population that they rivaled the very empire that housed them. 
The Pharaoh would say, Read it to me. We can't tell them. They're a threat to us. But, but this, uh, this promise of being fruitful, of multiplying, is not the first time you see this in the Old Testament. You guys probably know where the first time was. God creates Adam and Eve, and he says, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So do it. So he creates Adam and Eve. And he says, This is what I want you to do. You're in this perfect garden paradise. Now I want you to populate it and, and grow the garden and expand it out over the whole world. Well, obviously that didn't happen because they fell into sin. But that doesn't stop God from the same purpose. After the fall, after some hundreds of years, he, the world is filled with wickedness. Because instead of populating the world with, with, with goodness and extending God's kingdom of love and kindness, it's filled with wickedness, says Genesis 6-5. And so the world is flooded. And he says this to Noah after the flood. So there's Noah and his wife and some sons and daughters, daughters-in-law. He says, you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply. So he's starting over, in a sense. Do this and multiply. There would be another problem. Tower battle, more sin. He calls Abraham, God does. And he says, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So again, he takes Abraham and he says, go out and be a great nation. Grow. <coughs> and, and, then, and then finally, what happens here in Exodus, it's the same thing. Wants people to, to grow up. Now, this isn't a sermon like about having more kids, but this is the this is the way of the church and the way of God's kingdom. God wants He's He's building His kingdom and building His church. And He's He's even doing that despite trouble or opposition. But there's more than just God's command for for Adam, Noah, or Abraham, or Jacob to be fruitful and to multiply. It's more than a command. It's actually a divine decree. It's a pronouncement of, I'm going to do this through you. So more than just like my words to you or a command and hopefully you obey them and do them, It, it's a decree. God says, this will happen through you. We might think of God's promises like our promises, like, oh, I promised to do this, and that's what God would say, well, I promised me to grow. That's not God's way of promises. God's promise is an unalterable, unbreakable word of pronouncement. You know, at the end of the service, we do a benediction, right? That is a pronouncement of God's favor, irrespective of who it falls upon or what you're feeling like that at that moment. It is a pronouncement of the Lord blessing keep you. And in the same way, this command slash pronouncement to Jacob is, is coming into fruition. 
It's being fulfilled. But, but this same plan isn't for Israel alone. This is how God has grown his church, whether in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. God is constantly growing his church. And by our vision, sometimes it looks like he's shaking the church, or he's moving the church or doing something, or maybe we might even think that God is sleeping on the job. What are you allowing our church to go through? But God is constantly building his church. Colossians 1, this is how Paul tells the Colossians he prays for them. He prays that the, that the word of the gospel, the word of truth of the gospel, would bear fruit in you and increase in you. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly what God gave to Jacob and Noah and Adam and Abraham. And Paul says in Colossians, I pray that the word of the word of truth bears fruit in you and increases in you, so that you are filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom, that you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, that you are fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. If there's one there's so much to say. There's one thing about the Christian is that the Christian is a growing person. And the church, the Christian church, is a growing entity. We don't we aren't static. Whether the congregation stays 60 or 50 or 2 or whatever, that, that's irrespective of the fact of there's spiritual maturation and growth to be had. When God says to Adam in the garden, be fruitful and multiply, and, and through Adam and, and Abraham, mankind does that, there's, there's a spiritual guarantee behind your growth. There's a promise that God makes that he will grow you. It's often he does that through our willing obedience. Sometimes he does that even through our unwilling obedience, our disobedience. But God is always growing his people. There is a principle of life embedded in the soul of the Christian that the Christian will grow. Will have more and more of the life of God in him or her to become more and more like Christ. Has anything been a whole week? We're going back to Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. The word is at work in you, believers. The word, which is the gospel salvation, is at work in the believer. That's gotta be an encouraging thought. In Sunday school, we were talking about well, a lot of things. Grace, faith, and uh, including backsliding. The Christian is a moving person. It's always growing. Because, and, and always growing, not because it's up to you alone, but because God is in you 
whether that we know that individually or corporately, the Lord is constantly growing His church with His own divine power. You know, when I was a young Christian, I used to think, it's by my obedience I'll grow. That's a lie from hell. We grow through wonderful times of obedience. We grow through very bitter times of disobedience. We grow through times of suffering, times of sorrow. We go through all sorts of times. But the word of truth is embedded, or in the words of the, in the, in the words of the New Testament, is abiding in you. And the word comes into you, and like a seed, it gets planted and the seed dies. What happens when the seed dies? It begins to shoot out a stalk. And the stalk grows and produces leaves and more and more and more and more and more and more. That's how the Christian grows, by divine power at work in you. You might think, oh, I'm just a little Christian in their code. I don't know. I gotta read my Bible, I gotta pray, I gotta go to church, that's how I'm gonna grow. Yes, 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 yes. More importantly and more fundamentally than all of that is this God is at work to grow you into Christ's image. Secondly, threats to that promise never ultimately succeed. Threats to God's promises never succeed. Never ultimately succeed. Because from our vantage point, it looks like they're winning, but ultimately they're not. So from verses 10 to the end of the chapter, we see, we see a turn. This is the start of redemption. This is the turn where there's a need of redemption. Hey, things are going great. Nexus 1, 1 through 7. Israel's there, they're growing, they're happy, they're living off the land. Hey, we're good. <laughs> and then now there arose in Egypt a new king who did not know Joseph. The prior pharaoh, the prior king of Egypt, knew Joseph, loved Joseph, liked Joseph, like all Joseph's families. A new one came, and he did not like Joseph, didn't know him, didn't care about him. He only saw Israel as a loitering threat. Uh, and you can't really blame him because at this point in Egyptian history, one dynasty just fell, another marauding group came in and had taken over. And so they see Joseph as a threat and his family. So what do they do? They say, okay, we got an idea. Let's, let's curb their population growth and deal wickedly with them to, to kind of put a lid on this thing. Now, we don't want them to leave because if they left, they might join another nation and come back and make war with us, which is very familiar if we know the Exodus story. The future pharaoh, not the same pharaoh, the future pharaoh would say, I'm not going to let your people go. I'm not going to let them go. I don't want them here, but I don't want them gone. So this pharaoh says, they're too many, they're too mighty for us. So plan A. Plan A. Let's stop their growth and don't let them leave. 
So then set taskmasters over there, verse 11, and afflict them, deal shrewdly with them, harshly with them, and make them build our cities, which they did. But what was the outcome of this? Verse 12. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. So Pharaoh's plan was this. If we work them to death, they're going to die. If we work them to death, they're not going to want to procreate. They're not going to go back to the family and have more kids. They just want a nice sleep. But what happens? The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. There is a corresponding affliction blessing. The more they were afflicted, the more they grew. And in the Hebrew, it comes out extremely clear. There's a perfect parallel and connection here. And it really, it can read, as they were oppressed, so they multiplied. Did, were they harshly oppressed, harshly, cruelly dealt with? They were richly blessed, richly populating, richly multiplying and spreading abroad by God. Suffering to the Christian does not stop God for one second. We, we, we might think, and I, I want to talk about suffering realistically. We might think, okay, I've received some bitter providence. I'm, I'm, I'm suffering. I'm under God's affliction or somebody's affliction. That must mean God is handcuffed. In fact, verse 12 proves God likes to use suffering to build his people. So, plan A failed. Oh, and also Egypt became dread of them. And we'll see this, we'll see this going out as the plagues come in the later chapters. Plague after plague after plague. Pharaoh sees it, responds, he hardens his heart, he responds in various ways, but no matter what, <coughs> the end was happening, the victory was going to happen. So plan A fails, frustration comes to Pharaoh, he says plan B, plan B, verse 15. Let's go to the Hebrew midwives, Shepra and Pua, which it is no small detail. Because names listed in the Bible are mentioned, that the names of the Hebrew midwives, normal people, lowly normal slaves, are mentioned, and the name of the king Egyptian, of king Egyptian, king of Egypt, isn't even mentioned. Pharaoh isn't his name. Pharaoh means king of Egypt. He's nameless. He's a nobody. He's a nobody in God's kingdom. Somebody is Shepherd. There's somebody, Moses, Aaron. The Pharaoh, the king of the most powerful empire of the world at the time, is a nobody. He doesn't threaten God when I would. So, but plan B for Pharaoh is all right, I'm going to talk to Hebrew midwives and I'm going to tell them when they see a son be born, kill the son. Kill the son. Let the little girl live. Inexplicably, the moms give birth too fast. Midwives can't get there, can't kill them. You're not robbing a mom 
I don't remember. <laughs> See ya. Not happening. The Hebrew midwives don't get there, and the outcome is they grow stronger. It says in verse 20, so God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. This is the theme of chapter 1. Pharaoh is trying to keep this cap on, and God just keeps blowing it off. Pharaoh, you don't stand a chance, dude. You have Yahweh, the creator of the world, against you. You better humble yourself. You don't stand a chance. Even God loves to use lowly people to confound and embarrass those who are strong and wise in their own estimation. And he uses Shiprat and Pua to do that with Pharaoh. Didn't work. And even in this, the midwives, who most likely are unable to have their own children, God gives them gems. Even the kindness of the Lord. In this situation, God God gives the midwives who are unable to bear children families by letting these children survive. And you got to be thinking, the Pharaoh's got to be like, oh, I'm so frustrated. This is not working. Why can't these people do this? So plan C. Infanticide. 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people. He's not commanding now the Hebrew midwives, he says to all his people, every son, that is Hebrew son, you see, cast into the Nile and let every daughter live. So, okay, Pharaoh thinks the midwives aren't good murderers. That's why they're midwives. Let people live. <laughs> and he tells every single person in his empire an Egyptian edict, an Egyptian decree, Kill all Hebrew boys. And let the daughters live. So you have Pharaoh's decree. Death. Kill all boys. Yahweh's decree. Multiply. Spread abroad. Increase. Who's win? Who's gonna win? Now, granted, not always do these stories work out this way, but at this point, you have this divine dilemma. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who's, who's a god in the sight of the Egyptians, and Yahweh, the one true real god. And it's a lottery. Who's going to win? God isn't there physically, uh, visibly, but he's invisibly working through this very lowly nation, the Hebrews, Israelites. And he's embarrassing the mightiest empire probably of the day. This is a, these are the forces at work. Divine plan by Yahweh to grow his people and the the strongest earthly opposition 
and it's 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 foil. The plant is foil. It's it's actually convenient to read this and say like it, it's not because the midwives were walking slowly or the Hebrew women were only that they were vigorous or or the Israelites enjoyed procreation. Those are not the reasons why Israel grew. Israel grew because there's a divine decree behind them saying, you will grow. My people grows. And this is a lesson for really everyone. For those who oppose the Lord. Those who fight with God will be miserable. Those who don't want the Lord's will in your life incensed. You will be so frustrated that you are not able to control something that you want to so desperately control. What is going on in your lives? Thousands of things are going on in your lives right now. Hundreds, thousands of things going on. In them is the will of the Lord. Please yield to the will of the Lord. This goes for both non-Christians and Christians. For Christians, please yield. You see, uncle, yield to the will of the Lord. You will only become more hard-hearted and more angry, more bitter, more frustrated, more. <laughs> I'm, I'm a fallen sinner. I love my children, but sometimes I am incensed that I cannot control them. It's the same thing. Whether it's to children or to a friend or to the Lord of glory, the Christian will become so frustrated and mad that the Lord is doing something you don't want to happen. Instead, just say, Lord, let your will be done. I don't get it. I don't understand it. Frankly, I don't want it. But let your will be done. To the non-Christian, there's a very interesting thing that goes on. For the non-Christian who's, who's opposing God, you will also become very callous, very hard, very frustrated. But there might be a point in your life where in opposing the Lord consistently, you actually are given what you want. The will of the Lord is against you, and then in some way, you think, oh, it's turned. Finally, the Lord has given me what I wanted, and he's relented. sad place. Because he's given you what you want. And you think you want what you lost. Because he's given you what you wanted and it wasn't the kind, merciful will of Christ. It was your own way. It was your own way. And the, and the sad part is, you think you wanted it. You think you beat God. And you lost. 
And now you're only more embroiled in confusion, hardness of heart, a calloused heart, a numb heart, unable to feel God's will. There is also a little lesson of comfort in this, in that threats against God's people, against God's plans, they never ultimately succeed. Sometimes they look like they're winning, the enemies, but they never ultimately succeed. They never do. Why? Because we're not Israel in this moment. Egypt didn't define their life. Their time in Egypt did not define their life. What defines their life was future, was eternity. Christian, brother, sister, what defines life is not today, not tomorrow. Not what you think is written of a story, which you really are a lot more than other than things about. What defines life is eternity. We are not people of now. We, we want to be. We want to be now. Fix it now. But we are people of the future. <laughs> Sounds like we come from the future. <laughs> we are people of the future. We concern ourselves first and foremost of eternity. A really, really rich psalm. By David, closes his way. Wait for the Lord. This is Psalm 27, verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. And let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. There's a reason why he says, be strong and be courageous, or let your heart take courage. Because waiting on the Lord is hard. Waiting on the Lord requires divine strength and help. When, but when God promises the gross church, he most will surely do it. And even the very gates of hell won't stop it from growing. Egypt? Egypt. Israel? <laughs> they didn't scare anybody. They didn't scare anybody. They were laughable. When, when they were not walking in step with the Lord, they were an embarrassment and a blight to God's election. But God chose this little country. Remember Gideon's army? 300 dog slurping musicians. That's who they were? And the Lord said, I'm going to use these 300 dog-slurping musicians, I think it's musicians, to defeat the Midianites. And he, they routed them. Israel didn't intimidate the Midianites. The nations knew when Yahweh was with Israel, don't touch Israel. But they knew, oh, Israel's chasing after our gods? They want to marry our people? They want to forget Yahweh? No. And every time they get humbled. 
completely owned by the neighboring nations. Defeated in war, it just ransacked. They lose the Ark of the Covenant. They, it'd be an embarrassment. Israel doesn't embarrass. They don't threaten anybody. From the world's perspective, we don't threaten anybody. The church today, they laugh at us. But the power's not in us. The power of growth and continuing and growing as a church, both as a corporate church and as a universal church all over the world, isn't the power of God alone. We, Paul says, we are these cracked earthenware vessels that look so plain, so ordinary, so common, just to be discarded. But within that is the power of God. The power of God, Christ Himself dwelling in the, in the Christian. So there is no there is no threat that can overwhelm God's, God's people. Lastly, I just want to say this in closing: reading Exodus one and into Exodus two should be familiar. Should be very, very familiar. It is Genesis 1 through 3 in parallel. God's people are in a rich, garden like land, Goshen. A threat comes in a new king, a new pharaoh, who wants to enslave God's people. God's people, as a result of this new enemy, has to work the land, toil, with their hands. Pharaoh makes war with the offspring of Hebrew women. Once again, yet despite the war, despite the tactics and agenda of the enemy, God's present. He keeps his people. And as we'll see here in chapter 2, he raises up a deliverer. What we see in Exodus 1, we see in Genesis 1 through 3, it's the story of the entire Bible. And it's a story which you are all placed in. Whether you're a Christian or not, if you're a Christian, you love the story. You love being redeemed. You love knowing that there's a powerful foe out there, but he's been defamed. If you're not a Christian, consider you're at war with the most powerful being. God, trying to follow the Spirit, there are more to do. Wave the white flag. Surrender. Give up. Say, Lord, I, I don't want to battle with you. Please be merciful to me. I see, I stand no chance in winning this battle 
Please be merciful. That's that's the gospel story. And in Exodus, that's that's what we see. Story of Israel, the story of all of us. Men and women in bondage to sin, but God, despite their inability to get out of their own bondage, powerfully rescuing them and delivering them through Christ to worship. That's, that's the gospel story. There will always be an enemy, there will always be sin, there will always be effects of sin, but there's always God invisibly working, causing his people to grow. Never leaving nor forsaking his people, but, but marching ultimately to grow. Let's pray. Father, would you burn in our hearts these truths? How often we forget your promises? How often we think how effectual and strong and powerful your promises are. Let us repent. Let us, um, Lord, cause us to see your promises differently than how we might. That when you promise to, to increase your people, to save them, to be with them, and to love them, you, you will do so. And it's by all of your own gracious initiative. Teach us that and, and cause us to walk away with that today, worshiping you. Amen. <laughs> <laughs>